Hi guys, welcome to Consuming Crime with Jen and Jules. I'm Jen. And I'm Jules. So, how's everybody doing? We got Ange in the room with us today. Hey. We got audience today. <laughs> so I'm telling the story to two two people today. Well, all you guys too, but two live. Yeah. Oh, announcement, guys. We're on YouTube now. Yeah, we're on YouTube now, so you guys can check us out on there too. I don't know if that's easier for some of you guys that prefer that. that it's are just, a, it's just another platform we're yeah. on, but we're not. it's not a video. It's just a, it's basically just a, a picture of our logo and then audio will be video one day but no plans anytime soon also while you're listening wherever you're at please don't forget to give us a five-star rating it really helps a lot and we're just gonna get straight into the story yep my number one source is the documentary it's documentary series kind of like a show series from investigation discovery someone you thought you knew and this is season two episode six i believe Okay, so today's story takes place in northern Maine. So northern Maine, there's just a lot of it's a lot of nature. That's not like a big city, you know. What's that lady that like danced on a prairie? I don't know. What Julia Roberts. Yeah, Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, no, that's yeah. Is that Julia Roberts? No, that show is really old. <laughs> okay. Anyway, okay, okay I'm thinking. So, of, yes. I'm thinking of that. So the story takes place in Maine, where there's just a lot of nature, lakes, trees, animals. And amongst all that nature is the tiny town of Webster Plantation. It's home to about 7,500 residents and there's actually, there's no street light and there's just a couple stop signs and it's just extremely small town. That's just the only way you can put it. So there wasn't a lot of crime in this town. It was known to be kind of like that town where nobody really locks their doors, where everybody thinks they know everybody, everybody's friends, everybody helps each other out. And just as as every story, you just never expect anything to happen there. Especially in small towns, you really yeah. never expect it. Yes, it's really rare. But of course, that all changed on November 28th, 2009. Oh, this is recent. Yeah. It's funny because it sounds recent, but it's like, it's 10 years ago. Okay. So, but November 28, 2009, all that was set to change. That afternoon, dispatch receives a heartbreaking 911 call. The 911 call was placed by Alan Richardson. He claimed that he had stopped by the home of a friend, Mike, and his wife, Valerie Miller, to just pay a visit. But instead, he was greeted with a disturbing discovery. Police were immediately sent to the location of the Millers, and when they arrived, they went straight into the home. The house appeared clean and looked like nothing had been disturbed. It looked like as if no one was in the house or, like, had been there. And it wasn't until they walked into the kitchen that they discovered two bodies. The bodies were of Mike and Valerie. And what was unusual was the positions of the body. Mike was underneath with his back on the floor. And Valerie was right next to him. Kind of like with her head placed on his chest. And there was no blood. Why does this make me so sad? I hate when couples die together. I know. The years they've spent together. Man, this sick fuck put them together like that. That's disgusting. As investigators got closer, they noticed the cause of the death. Mike had a gunshot to the back of his head, and Valerie had a gunshot through her right temple. They appeared to be from close range. Investigators began to look for surrounding evidence. There was no sign of forced entry, they were not robbed, and they just noticed a small metal ring right next to Mike, but investigators had no idea what it was or what it meant, so they didn't dwell on it. Not too long after, while investigators are there, their son, Mike Jr. arrived. Uh. So Mike Jr. arrives and he immediately tries to run inside to see what's going on but was stopped by an investigator and they broke the news. Mike and Valerie were high school sweethearts and were born and raised in their town of Webster Plantation. 
They started dating at the age of 15. She got pregnant, got married, and the rest was history. Valerie was a stay-at-home wife and enjoyed it, and Mike worked at the wood mill, like many other did in that small town. They were overall great people. As soon as investigators broke the news to Mike, he tried to make contact with his younger brother, Matt, but he was having trouble at the moment. Eventually, investigators wanted to talk to Mike Jr. and hope for some answers. He was asked by investigators about the last time he had seen and spoke to them, in which Mike Jr. replied that he had spoke to them this morning. According to Mike, they all had plans to get together for Matt's daughter's first birthday party. Mike and Valerie's granddaughter's party. Yeah. According to Mike Jr., he also claimed that the couple were going to get a gift and a cake before the party. They were able to find out that Mike and Valerie also had a small loan business, which they would loan money to people in exchange for, like, land or a deed of some sort, or, like, a pawn shop, kind of. Yeah. And they enjoyed helping people. This business was done in a small room. This room was off the kitchen, and it was just filled with things like movies, tools, guns, and safes. His business seemed to be going good, but investigators also knew it would be a risk. They knew that he would have a lot of cash at hand at all times. Mike Jr. said that his father was very organized and kept books of ledgers and who owed what. As they looked through the books, they noticed one of the ledgers were missing, which seemed odd and raised several questions, and that wasn't the only thing that was missing. Upon closer look, they realized that one of the safes was missing as well. At this point, it was clear that Robbery was one of the potential motives. Mike Jr. was asked if he had any idea of who could have stopped by that day. And he claimed Clayton, his cousin, could have stopped by. And I feel like at this point, because it's a small town, they know that somebody has to know something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, that's right. It's a small town. Yeah, because I think of like, damn, if this would have happened like in LA, like New York, Chicago, Chicago, (laughs) like I just feel like your chances are so slim and we don't even know where they were killed like they could have been killed somewhere else and then just drop well eh, yeah. i don't know never mind they would have had <laughs> access to the house <gasps> theory okay go T. ahead okay everyone in the town was shocked they had no idea if it was a random attacker if it was someone they knew and they were just like on edge police were finally able to track down the last person who saw the couple alive their nephew Clayton. Clayton told investigators he and his nine-year-old daughter had stopped by the Millers at around 10. Clayton denies his involvement and offered anything he can do to help clear his name. And he seemed honest. He claimed he left the Miller's house at around 10.30 and revealed more information that he was not the only visitor. He was joined by Mike Jr.'s best friend, Nate Nightingale, Mm -hmm. and stated that Nate stayed behind after he had left. Sure, Clayton, (laughs) sure. I don't like this guy. Investigators now began their search for Nate and also Matt Miller, the Miller's other son, to see if they had it, if he had had any information. And Nate is Matt's best friend? Nate is Mike Jr.'s best friend. So that the son that w- actually ended up going to the scene. Yeah. And then Matt is the other brother that... Yeah, the younger brother. Yeah, the younger brother. And Clayton's saying that his cousin's best friend was there. Yeah. Mm. Investigators now began their search for Nate and Matt Miller the Miller's other son, to see if he had any information. They meet with Matt, and his demeanor was strange. He seemed nervous, instead of distraught, as as one would, like, normally act. Yeah, when your parents are dead, yeah, you should exactly. be a little upset, dude. But again, that's not enough. It seemed like he did not want to know anything. Like, he just did not want to hear about what happened to his parents and just wanted to avoid the topic overall. And he hesitated to tell them where he was at, until investigators told him that they were just simply trying to get more information. He finally begins to become more forthcoming. He told investigators that on the day of the murders, he and his girlfriend were driving around and they were eventually gonna go to the birthday party at Mike's. He was being very vague. Meanwhile, 
Nate is also traced down. So Nate, the best friend, the See, best friend. I don't get that. Mm-hmm. Like, if he had nothing to like, let's assume Matt had nothing to do with it, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. But like, why are you acting suspicious and weird when yeah. you're pa- like? I don't like that. Like I mean, there's just, no yeah. there's no one way to yeah. act. It's just like really. Yeah. I'll go ahead. Meanwhile, Nate is also chased down. Nate referred himself as the third son to the Millers and saw both Matt and Mike as brothers. So he's talking about Mike Jr. Mm-hmm. He stated he was shocked when he heard the news as he had just seen them, and pretty much confirmed Clayton's story that Clayton and his daughter were there as well. Okay. Okay. So stories match. He does some business according to Nate. And then left a little after Clayton. He says Mike received a phone call at around 10.43 a.m. So, like, as he's leaving, he heard Big Mike received a phone call. Like, investigators noted that the time of the 911 call was 12.24 a.m. So. And who called 911? Um, another friend. It was, was like, it a family an, an... friend. And his name was Alan Richardson. Okay, so it was obviously someone that had a key to get in to find the bodies. What the hell? Okay, I'm getting the timeline. Go ahead. Nate says that Big Mike received a phone call at around 10.43 as he was leaving. Investigators noted that the phone 911 phone call was placed at 12.24 okay, p.m. So, so that gives oh, about PM. like two hours or so that where the time where the crime could have occurred. That's not enough time. I don't know. To clean up the blood. Too. You think though, like, I feel like they were found with gunshot wounds so i feel like that's kind of quick so the only thing you really have to do is like clean up brain splatter though yeah there's brain matter that comes out i just feel okay so 10 43 and 12 24 p.m so it's two hours uh, okay all right so nate leaves the miller's house and meets up with his girlfriend brooke and then later nate shares something he claims he had seen a woman as he was leaving and claims he had never seen her before. She was about 5'3 and 130 pounds, wearing glasses with bangs. And oh describes God. her as having a conversation with Valerie. It seemed as if it could have been someone local or, or clearly somebody that knew the Millers. Really quick, you guys, I interrupt this program to introduce you to today's sponsor. It is Consuming Crime's very first sponsor, and that is Audible.com, which is an Amazon-owned company. They are the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, and self-development. Every month, you get one free credit, and with our code, Consuming Crime, you can get one month free and one free audiobook. I actually use Audible myself. I don't really have time to sit down and read a book. I'm constantly moving around and, you know, doing school, work, the podcast, things like that. Right now, I am currently reading a book written by Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. I love a lot of his works, and the one I'm reading right now is called The Mastery of Self. I am obsessed with self-development, self-growth, and this book really teaches you about knowing who you are knowing you know what you have to offer the world and just knowing that you know no one's better than anyone ever and i think it's really good to just be self-aware with that being said again go on and head over to audibletrial.com slash consuming crime and get your free audiobook on us completely again that is audibletrial.com slash consuming crime now back to the story I don't, she sounds fake already. I don't know. I don't buy Nate because you're you're remembering somebody you see and passing by. Like, do you remember what I, our cashier looked like today? No. We didn't have one. It was self-checkout. See? You don't even remember. 
How do you remember somebody that specifically if you're just passing by them? I'm all... See? See? I don't believe Nate, but I, I'll give him okay. the benefit of the doubt. Go ahead. Investigators immediately start searching for this woman. And they get a sketch done and just begin to go door to door asking people if she looked familiar. I'm like, damn, they really go door to door. Mm-hmm. They I would be- love that. To be a cop and yeah. just knock on people with like that. Like, like that stern knock. Like you have to open the door. That's I'm a true. cop. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be a cop. Yeah, don't. <laughs> They begin to get tips. As investigators look into those tips, another phone call is received from Matt's girlfriend. His girlfriend claims that Matt was actually not with her that morning. She had tried to call him because they were supposed to be planning their daughter's birthday party, but he would not pick up at all. So remember, Matt's story was that he was running errands with his girlfriend that morning, and then they were going to go... To Matt yeah. and Bells for the birthday I, I remember. I'm just sitting here like, <laughs> what? Okay. Uh, okay. I know this case. Gosh, it's like Sebastian and and uh, Atif, except this guy might have actually done it because Sebastian and Atif didn't do it, as we all know. I'm not going to get into that. Okay, moving <laughs> forward. So, as I mentioned, Matt was not picking up the phone when his girlfriend was calling him, even though he had claimed that he was with her that morning. And after further investigation, it was proven that many people saw his truck in the town of in the town of Plantation, so where the crime occurred. It was soon discovered that Matt had a drug addiction and had begun to sell things for drugs and money. Oh, so he began my to sell gosh. like Xbox and whatever he can get, he started selling it for drugs. He had no job and his relationship with his father was strained because of it. He expected money from Big Mike, but Mick, but Big Mike would not budge. Which I always, I'm like, damn, like, that's a good parent. Because you know what your son's going to spend the money on. Exactly. You know? On December 3rd, they arrested Mike for an outstanding warrant, which gave investigators an opportunity to talk to him. During the interrogation, Matt denied everything and would not give in to the investigators' accusations. However, another tip had been received that the night before the murders, Matt made a call to a man. So the man, this is the man on the phone. Okay. Asking if he had an untraceable gun he could buy, and the man gave him a 22, Dude. which was the type of gun investigators used. But Matt continued oh, to deny all allegations and claimed that his father was his hero and would never harm him. Investigators then bring in his brother, Mike Jr. So they bring in Mike Jr. back into the interrogation room and start asking him questions about Matt. He better not know anything about this because I have faith <laughs> in Mike Jr. Come on, dude. Mike Jr. Mike Jr. was upset and couldn't believe investigators thought that his little brother could have anything to do with this. He was just in denial and would not agree with investigators at all. Oh my gosh, I'm upset. <sighs> I'm still, I'm, I'm in denial a little bit. Your son? Okay, go ahead. Authorities held Matt in custody until they verified his new alibi. So, Matt had claimed that he actually did meet with this guy to pick up the 22 caliber or whatever. But that was that, that like nothing was, that he didn't do anything and all that stuff. What so a now coincidence. They're, so now they're checking his, his new alibi. They start by pulling surveillance videos from small businesses in Lincoln, in the Lincoln area, which is like 20 minutes away from the small town. So they would have seen like his car driving in or out at yeah. a certain time. Yes. Okay. And soon find his vehicle 
was in Lincoln driving north towards his parents' house at about 12.30 in the afternoon. Wait, towards, which was after the 911 call? Yes. Okay. Since the murder had to be done or committed from 10.45 a.m. to 12.45 p.m., and he was barely on his way there at 12.30, there's no way he would have had time to commit the crime. There's no way he would have had time to pull the trigger, but that doesn't mean he didn't have somebody do it. Okay. Mm. Fair enough. Interesting. (laughs) And if he was no near the area around the time, he would have not been able to commit the murders. Investigators were not able to refute the video since it was time-stamped and Matt Miller was cleared of all charges. Well, at that point, they couldn't further investigate him, even if they had a conspiracy. Yeah, I mean, as of now, like, all they have is... Legally, they can't keep bothering him. They have solid proof, and that's all they have. And his drug addiction, which they kind of took advantage to get him into the interrogation. Yeah. Investigators were shocked and disappointed, but they knew they had to keep moving forward, so they decided to head back to the surveillance video for more clues. At around 8.35 a.m., police see a familiar vehicle driving towards the Webster Plantation. They finally felt like they had something. After weeks on the investigation, investigators felt like they were finally zeroing in on the right person. Surveillance videos show Nate Nightingale making his way towards the plantation on that morning. So he was on his way there at around 8.35, which sounds about what he had said. And then they don't see his car heading back towards Lincoln, so leaving the plantation until 11.25 a.m. I was going to say 11.30, bet, bet. (laughs) You're close. I should have (laughs) bet. I know. (laughs) On December 11, 2009, Nate agrees to go into the station to be interviewed. Investigators told Nate that they knew that the last person who saw the Millers alive was the killer and that they knew that that was him. Then they hit Nate with the evidence and timestamps of the video. Ooh, imagine how that must feel as an investigator. Satisfying. Like, they got him. Nate insists his innocence. He's claiming he has too much to lose and that he would never commit these murders. And then when investigators ask him, like, oh, what do you have to lose? He's like, well, my career in the military, that he's not even enrolled in yet. He's, oh my gosh. He then even decides to take a polygraph test, which he fails. And investigators have to let him go anyway because they did not they were not able to get a full confession. Oh, because all they have is timestamps. Yeah. That's that's um circumstantial. Yeah, like it's not an actual hard hit cuz it's like what if he stopped by the store or stopped somewhere else after he had left the Miller's? I mean, they could take him to court, but the odds of him getting convicted are super high. Yeah. Investigators knew it was him but needed more evidence. And then they get a very important phone call from Brooke who had initially covered for him. She gave investigators detail that had not been released, such as all the items that he had stolen, such as a ledger, the safe, and the wallet. So when he stole the wallet from Big Mike, mm-hmm. it was like one of those chain wallets. Okay. And that that's what that ring was. That metal ring next to Big Mike was oh. like the terror. Like, but investigators at the time didn't know that that was tied to his wallet. They reached out to Nate and confronted him once again with the new evidence they had received from Brooke. And though he initially panicked, he finally caved and he said he was ready to talk. He claimed that that day he had a date planned with Brooke, but he had no money. Really? Yeah, dude. Really? So he went over to the Millers as he normally would. He, w- I guess he was always there, so it wasn't a shocker that he stopped by. He went and he claimed he just talked to them, talked to Clayton, and talked to Clayton's daughter. 
the whole time he had a gun and claimed that what had happened was initially an accident. Oh, I shot them, not one of them, both of them on accident. Oops. Nate claimed he was showing Big Mike the gun and that Mike was checking it out and then gave it back to him, but kind of continued looking at it. Then he walked away and Nate claims he was adjusting the gun a little and accidentally pulled the trigger (laughs) and shot him in the back of the head. Perfectly. From close proximity. Yeah, dude. From close proximity. So Nate claimed that Valerie heard the shot went over to kind of just like hear like see if, if she could hear a heartbeat hear a heartbeat and he ended up shooting her oh that's why he she was on his yeah, chest dude, oh my god that broke my heart that's so sad oh my god see that's uh, i i kind of wish her first instinct would be to go after him but it's actually really sweet that her first instinct was to check on mike i hate couples dying i know especially these kind of couples that are like actually couples you know (laughs) nate claimed he then grabbed his wallet and ripped it out of his pocket grabbed the paperwork the safe and then just ran nate also admitted that there was never a woman i'll see i'm sure i can find the sketch but the description that he gave the police to make the sketch of this woman really resembled him are you serious? Like, it's kind of funny. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. It was just glasses because he wore glasses. Did he have, like, he, the JB haircut? Yeah, like, his hair was in, but pretty much the way the sketch was was, like, just front things, and it kind of looked like she had her hair up. So she kind of just looked like it can be, like, gender neutral, honestly. I knew it was fake, bro. Oh, my God. It's too specific. I know. As soon as you said that, I was like, damn, this bitch is good. <laughs> I'm telling you. So that so Nate, Nate never really admitted. He he stuck to the fact that it was an accident, and he never really claimed. Wait, wait, Nate. Nate was the one said that he saw the glasses with the bangs, yeah. not Matt. Nate. And on December twelfth, Nate was charged with the murders. And of course, no one was more shocked than his best friend Mike Jr. He didn't know how to take it. It was actually it was like really. They grew up together. His parents pretty much helped raise him. He was always there, so he just overall they all felt betrayed. Matt let, later like came out too in the interview and it was just sad because he was like crying they were both crying and he was just saying how he wished he was more present and he was like you know at that moment i was so on drugs like i honestly didn't even care and didn't really realize what had happened like that's how bad my addiction was so that it kind of explains his behavior overall as why he was kind of so distant at at first i thought like he was just in shock but then after his interview like i I realized that he just really mentally wasn't there Mm -hmm. so it's crazy, you know, I can tell in the interview he, he kind of was scared for a second. Like, like that could have easily been pinned on him if it wasn't for some reason. Oh, see, yeah, that's a good reason to be yeah. suspicious. Recanting my previous statement Yeah, for this and episode. And then acting strangely. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, as I mentioned, he was charged for both murders. Can I see what this Nate kid looks like? Yeah. Okay, first of all, he's on drugs. Uh, that's my first thing. Oh my god, is that the sketch? Yeah. No, it's not. Oh my god. Look at the sketch. Okay, so wait. Look at the guy. This is... This is him, right? Yeah. Okay, this is um, Nate. I'm showing Ange. I'm showing our, our audience member. And then this is the sketch of the girl with the bangs. Look at... Look at... <laughs> she's, laughing. she's like laugh coughing. Does they kind of resemble each other? <laughs> He gave a description of himself as a woman. I told you, though, you don't remember people like that. Yeah, that's true. And you know the fun, like, not the funny thing is, but investigators claim that they notice it happens often. When the person is lying about a sketch or whatever, they tend to describe themselves. 
That is really interesting. And I was like, what? Like, because as soon as I saw the sketch, I swore I thought, like, it kind of, like, looked like... But you know, the funny thing is, is, like, it's the documentary's actors. So I couldn't really, really tell. Mm. And then they finally showed an actual picture of him. And I was like, hmm, that kind of looks like the sketch. And then later, they were like, it, the lady was kind of laughing. Like, you know, it's kind of funny because... He's not so smart. Like, mm-hmm. the sketch resembled him, like, a lot. And I'm just like, man. Honestly, I'm glad he's he's an idiot. I'm glad Brooke, Brooke came forward. Yeah, honestly, that was his only... That was the only reason that they even left him alone. They weren't even looking at him until she called, mm-hmm. right? They were going to let him go. I mean, there's nothing they can do at the moment. They were going to probably try to dig deeper. But if Brooke would have stayed, stayed covering for him, then who knows what would have happened. Alrighty, but thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate your support. Please don't forget to give us five stars. That helps a lot. And yeah, thank you for consuming crime with us. Bye. Toodles.